You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Uh, I remember when I was uh, sitting in your shoes and your spots uh, when I wasn't actually a believer, uh, and uh, coming to Gethsemane was such a treat, and uh, it was through the preaching of the word uh, during these times for me when I was a student that, that God really used that to convert, convert me and to change my heart and to give me new life. And so before we begin, I just want to pray, pray for you especially. Uh, if you are not a believer here, if, you're, if this is your first time here, I just want to specifically pray for you. So please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks again for this time of praise and prayer. And now as we turn to the preaching of your word, we pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us. We especially pray for our new friends. We pray, Lord, that today you would open their eyes, open their hearts to truly see and behold the beauty of Christ and to receive you as Lord and Savior. We thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'll be preaching from one single sentence. And before you get too excited about, about that, maybe thinking this might be a very short sermon, I should tell you that in the original Greek, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 is one single sentence. Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, hear the word of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. This was the reading of God's word. So as I mentioned in the original Greek, verses 1 through 7 is one single long run-on sentence. And here in this one single unbroken flow of thought, we find both bad news and good news. The bad news is about the state of sinners and their impending doom before they knew Christ, which we find in verses 1 to 3. And the good news is about God's gracious and saving work in Christ for believers, which we find in verses 4 to 7. So clearly in Paul's mind, the good news cannot be divorced from the bad news. In other words, the bad news sets the necessary context for the good news to be understood and to be received. Imagine if I gave you a bottle of water as a gift. It's free, I give it to you. How grateful would you be? Maybe you might take a sip and then toss it out. 
But let's change the context, right? What if you found yourself in a hot, dry desert where there is no water to be found in sight? You're in this scorching heat and you're going to die. Well, in that context, the water bottle that I just gave you becomes a gift of greatest possession. It becomes your very source of hope and life, which you depend on. And the question is, do you know yourself right now to be in a spiritual desert? Or are you living in ignorance of the plight of humanity? You see, accepting the bad news of our sinful condition and the judgment our sin incurs is imperative to accepting the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you reject the diagnosis of the disease, there is no prognosis, there is no cure, there is no good news for you. And so with this in mind, let's take a closer look first at what the bad news really entails. In verse 1, if you look with me, the apostle reminds the Ephesian believers of the total depravity from which they have been redeemed. He writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Apparently, you can be breathing, you can be walking, you can be very much physically alive, and yet, you can be very much dead. That is, dead in your sins. Well, what does he mean by that? What does Paul mean when he says, you're dead in your sins? Well, when you are dead, you're just a lifeless, rotting corpse. You cannot hear, you cannot see, you cannot move, you cannot do anything. And Paul is saying that in our sin, people are dead to the things of God. Because of our sinful nature, we have an utter inability to hear, to see, and to respond to the things of God. Such is the fallen condition of all men and women. Another way to say this is we are all spiritually dead. In our sin, we have forfeited eternal life. This separation from God has been the plight of humanity ever since our forefather Adam fell into sin and was banished in, from the garden. At the dawn of history, Adam and Eve, they were tempted by Satan. They disobeyed God by taking and eating the forbidden fruit. And the consequences of their rebellion were of cosmic scale, far reaching across all generations. This cosmic impact of sin is still felt today. As we see it all around us, as we see it in the news, as we see it in our hearts. And the fall in Genesis is not a fictional story, 
but it is our reality, our narrative. We have all inherited a sinful and corrupt nature. We are all hopelessly and helplessly sinful at the core of our being. Now, I'm not saying that you and I were all like Hitler. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying we share the same nature. That is who we are. Just as a dead corpse cannot hear nor see, we cannot hear nor see the things of God. Just as a dead corpse cannot move or do anything, we cannot move ourselves closer to heaven nor do anything to save ourselves. The great reformer, Martin Luther, called this the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. He said we have a moral inability to be righteous because our will is not free to choose God and to choose holiness. Rather, he said that our will is in bondage to sin, meaning we are enslaved to our sinful desires and our sinful inclinations. Jesus Christ tells us that the greatest commandment in the law is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I ask, is there any man or woman here in this room who has fulfilled this law? The most important law in the Bible. Was there a single day in your life that you have truly loved God with everything as you should? The truth is, we have all failed and we continue to fail. We are law breakers hopelessly unable to keep the greatest commandment. In fact, we cannot even keep the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us even struggle to love our own parents, our own brothers and sisters. By way of illustration, I want to tell you that I love my wife very much. I love her so much and I want to love her perfectly and consistently and always all the time. I want to do this, but I know that in my sin, I am prone to failure. What's the issue here? Why can't we choose to love God as we should? every day, all the time. Why can't we choose to love our neighbor as ourselves every day, all the time? Well, the truth is, our will is not truly free. The great reformer, 
John Calvin said, if we define free will as the ability for man to choose what they want, choose what they want to eat, choose what they want to wear, choose where they want to live, choose where they want to go, of course we all have that kind of free will. Of course. But if we mean free will as the moral capacity for a man to choose righteousness, well, we do not have such free will because we are dead in our sin. Our fallenness renders us unable to respond to God in pure love, complete trust, and perfect obedience. That's why you and I, we can't wake up tomorrow morning and just choose not to be a sinner anymore. If you could, you should do it. You can't just choose not to be a sinner anymore, not to sin ever again in your life. That is who you are. That is what we are in our very nature. We are sinners and we will sin. We are inherently corrupt, self-centered, selfish, even though we know we ought not to be. What is more, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 2, that before conversion, we who were dead in our sins are bound to this world. We are bound to this world. They are controlled by the influences of the culture and the value of our age. They think like the world. They talk like the world. They dress like the world. They are trapped in the vanity circus of this perishing world. And they're obsessed with worldly affairs, worldly pleasures, and worldly possessions. And the ringmaster of the circus is Satan, introducing the various attractions. The world is his circus. In the second half of verse 2, Paul tells us that sinners follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is a direct reference to Satan. In the New Testament, the devil is called the ruler of the demons and the ruler of this world. Today, we have algorithms that collect all of our information, that collect all of our data to personalize and customize ads and content to keep us addicted and glued to our screens. But the devil works faster and smarter than algorithm and AI. He throws out the bait, and we will bite, and we will continue to bite. He will keep you addicted to your sins. He knows your greatest desires, your greatest weaknesses. 
He will do everything in his power to keep you in the spiritual desert. And the scary thing is that often he works discreetly and undetected. Sinners are under the tyranny and dominion of Satan, and they do not even realize. So, the world works against us. The devil works against us. But as if that's not enough, Paul tells us in verse 3 that our flesh works against us. We gratify the cravings of our flesh and follow its desires and thoughts. Like the wild beasts and animals that merely live to satisfy their cravings, so it is with us. But perhaps in more sophisticated and innovative ways. Statistics show that this generation right here is on track to be the most obese generation in human civilization. The sin of gluttony is rampant. Overindulgence, overconsumption of food, of drink, of alcohol, of entertainment, of Netflix, anything, anytime, anywhere, at a click of a button. What is more, our crooked and twisted generation consumes pornography like they consume food. You know what I'm talking about. 25 years ago, porn became universally accessible for the first time in history through the internet. And it has produced a whole generation of addicts and broken families and broken homes. You see, we like to think that we are masters of our body, especially those of you who work out, have a nice diet. But in reality, we are slaves to our body. Even if you think you achieved mastery over your body, it is true that you are still a slave to your lusts, your desires, your thoughts. Your flesh works against you. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Of course, this list is not exhaustive. But the point is this. The point is that our flesh and our inclinations are always bent toward evil and opposition to the holiness of God. We are like prisoners. We are like prisoners living in the prison cell of our sin. But the prison door is wide open. The door is unlocked and the door is wide open. A free man can just get up and walk out. But the problem is, we don't want to get out. 
We don't want to get out of our prison cell of sin because we love sin. Our will is in bondage to sin. We love sin. We love our prison cell of sin and we don't want to get out. That's the problem. Do you see? Hence, we are spiritually dead and enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh. However, that is not even the pinnacle of the bad news. I'm about to tell you the most terrifying truth in the Bible. The most terrifying truth in the Bible is that God is good. We say this all the time, but I don't think we have any idea what this actually means, that God is good. It means he is holy. It means he is perfect, righteous, just. This is terrifying to us because sinners are not good. And God will administer justice and annihilate all sin and rebellion before him. He has guaranteed it. Because God is holy and absolute in moral purity, no hint of sin can remain in his presence. Think about this. If God were right now to destroy and eliminate all sinners, wipe them out right now on this planet, would he do wrong? Would he do us wrong? if he were to kill and slay all, all the sinners on this planet, would he do wrong? If your answer is yes, that's not fair. You don't know the God of the Bible. We all grew up, maybe if you grew up in the church, in Sunday schools, learning about Noah and the ark and these cute little animals two by two going in the ark. That's not a cute story. That's not a cute story. What's the story about? You know, God did it before. He actually wiped out humanity before because of their sin, only keeping Noah and his family alive, and he did no wrong. He was righteous, and he still is righteous today, and he will be righteous when his wrath will come to consume all the wicked and godless here on this earth. You see, justice and wrath against sinners is the expression of God's holy character and goodness. In the second half of verse 3, Paul tells us of this terrifying fate of unconverted sinners. He writes, like the rest, we were by nature Deserving of wrath, of wrath, not his love, his wrath. I'm not making this stuff up. That's why we're preaching the word. Verse by verse, this is what it says. And Paul here is not talking about the, the wrath of Satan. 
Read it again. What is he saying? Sin and rebellion against God incurs the judgment of whom? The judgment of God. The wrath of God. Hell is real. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 2, Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. This is no fiction. But this is a warning. This is a warning. There is a great tidal wave that is coming, that is building up. It will sweep through the whole earth like a tsunami. The wrath of God will destroy all who stand opposed to him. Every soul shall be judged for their sins. And my question to you is, where do you stand? Do you stand in judgment or do you stand forgiven? Do not leave here until you answer that question. Friends, there is only one way to be saved. There is only one Savior who is willing to stand in your place in judgment so that you can be forgiven. There is no other solution. If you still think Christianity is all about keeping the law, keeping all the rules, being good enough to go to heaven, then you are terribly mistaken. I don't know what you've been learning at church. There is no sinner that will ever enter through the tall gates of heaven because they were good enough. Listen to me carefully. Heaven is not for good people. Jesus said, there is no one good but God. I hope heaven will not be empty. Rather, heaven is for forgiven people, covered by the precious blood of Christ. This is good news. You were spiritually dead, hopelessly sinful, storing up the wrath of God against yourself. But God intervened. Turn your eyes to verse 4 to 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here we see a dramatic shift from death to life, from condemnation to liberation, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. Yes, it is true that God is good, that he is holy, that he is perfect, that he is just and righteous. He does not turn a blind eye to sin. He will not let sin go unpunished. But 
Paul also describes God as a God of great love and rich in mercy. If you're following, this sounds like a paradox, right? How can God be holy and just while also remaining loving and merciful? How can God satisfy his wrath that our sin incurs while also forgiving our sins? The answer, the answer is the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ where God demonstrates his full expression of both his holy wrath and his perfect love. The Son of God has paid the cost of forgiveness. He gave his life as a ransom, swallowing up all the wrath of God for sinners who would believe in him. If you place your faith in him, he bears your sins, he takes your place, and he gives you his righteousness. And this free offer of the gospel is for all people without exception. I'm talking about you. If you think that you are a terrible sinner here in this room, I'm talking about you. No matter how terrible you are, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, you are invited to come. Come to the resurrected and exalted Christ. Come to him in faith and receive all his benefits today. Who among you shall come and take hold of him? Do not delay. There might be no tomorrow. Do not delay. Take hold of him before it's too late. And if you are willing, or if you have already taken hold of Christ by faith, and you are a Christian, well then Paul wants you to know two very important things. Alright, two very important things. He wants you to know this. First, you were made alive with Christ even when, that's what it says, even when you were dead in transgressions. Secondly, Therefore, it is by grace you have been saved. Once more, Paul draws our attention to our spiritual deadness. It is only as we understand the depth of our sins and our hopeless estate that we will finally begin to understand the height of our salvation and the greatness of God's grace. I suppose that most Christians here understand conversion like a man who is drowning at sea. He is drowning in his sin. And the life tube of the gospel is thrown to him and the sinner must reach out his hand, reach out and grab the life tube of the gospel, reach out to the hand of God and be pulled out to safety. 
I see Christian memes like this all around social media. But that picture cannot be further from the gospel revealed in the Holy Scriptures. How the Scriptures portray conversion is like a man who is already dead. At the bottom of the ocean, he is dead, he is not breathing, he is not moving, he is not calling out for help. He is not reaching out to God. He's dead. He's dead. He's very much dead. And it is when we were dead in our transgressions and sins that God drags us out and he forces his breath of new life into our lungs to make us alive. If you think this is a violation, it is. Think about it. If an unconscious victim Unconscious victim is powerless to give consent to their rescuer to perform CPR. Then how much more is a dead man utterly unable to give consent to God to perform the miracle of new birth in his heart? Think about Lazarus. He was dead and rotting in the grave for four days. A dead man cannot ask for a resurrection. But Jesus took the initiative, didn't he? And he went to the tomb. He opened the tomb. He called out, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man who was once dead walks out with new life. Think about Saul before he became Paul. He was breathing threats against the church. He didn't give God consent to show up on the road to Damascus. But Jesus appears before him, uninvited. And he converts the hater of Christ to the lover of Christ. He converts the persecutor of Christians to the leader of Christians. That's the work of God. You see, it is when we were utterly hopeless, unable to help ourselves, that God made us alive with Christ by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is the miracle of the new birth, to be born again. The Holy Spirit takes the first initiative to open our eyes to perceive the true beauty and glory of Christ. He gives us new hearts so that we are made willing to embrace and to choose and to love Christ. He grants us conviction of our sin and He grants us repentance and He enables us to have sincere faith in Christ. That is precisely why Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. Is this making sense? It is by grace you have been saved if you are saved today. 
Grace is the unmerited favor of God, the unconditional love of God shown to sinners who did not deserve it. Salvation is truly a gift, a free gift of God, completely unearned, undeserved. Believers are now destined to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and to reign with him forever in his kingdom. Believers will one day join him in glory in their new resurrected bodies, their unperishable bodies. All of this is a gift of God by grace, grace alone. But the question is why? Why does God save sinners? Why does God show grace? Why? Why? Did God look down from heaven and see that we're so lovely? We're just such lovely people. We're such good people. No. Did God think, oh, these group of Christians, they're so much better than the, all these other, other unbelievers? They're hardworking. They're good people. No. Is it because we feel sorry? We feel so sorry for our sins? No. Why? Why did he save you if you're saved today? It's not because you're good. It's not because you're lovely. If you're saved today, why are you saved? Why did he show you grace? People think, if we just make ourselves better, God will love us better. People think that if we just clean ourselves up, then God will finally receive us. These are lies, lies from Satan. So why? Why does God save sinners? Paul gives us a very clear answer in verse 7. And notice in verse 7, he does not mention anything about you. Nothing special about you. Nothing about you in verse 7. Salvation is not ultimately about us. Paul writes, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God wants to show off. He wants to display to the world his incomparable riches of his grace. This is the ultimate flex. It's the flex. God wants to show up how rich he is. Not his just wealth and money and nice cars. He wants to show off how rich in grace he is. How loving and merciful he is. He wants to show off to the world. He wants to blow your mind. 
God is flexing here because in the act of redemption, God is determined to show us that despite how sinful we are, how undeserving we are, His grace is infinitely more, infinitely more. And so, yes, humanity, we've messed up our planet. We messed up humanity. People kill people, people rape people, people steal from people, people start wars and people kill people. It's terrible. But God can redeem it all. And he can redeem your life. He can clean you up. You see, God is so rich in grace and mercy that even though we have given him countless reasons not to love us, his bank of love can never, ever run out. What a great and generous God that we have, brothers and sisters. For this king, we can live and die for. He is truly worthy of our allegiance, of our obedience. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget. Let us never forget that we have been saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. We were dead and utterly hopeless to help ourselves. But God made us alive with fresh desires and love for Christ. He has expressed his kindness to us in Christ, sealing all his benefits in his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And therefore, we have done nothing to earn this gift, but have freely received it. And so let us humble ourselves to the dust and let us give God all the glory alone, solely Deo Gloria. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your gospel. Lord, we are sinners and so, un so unworthy to be in your presence. And yet, oh, by grace, you have saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you have saved us. And so we thank you. We thank you so much. And we pray that you continue to open the hearts of those who are still doubting to believe and to take hold of you, Christ, and to receive all your benefits. We thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.